Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Claudia Kalb about Spark. First, wanted to encourage you to go to the new and improved website at booksonpod.com. You can search through past shows by episode number, by author's last name, by book title, or by subject. For instance, click on the science and medicine or psychology category to check out my chat with Lisa Feldman Barrett on seven and a half lessons about the brain. This is Lisa Feldman Barrett, author of seven and a half lessons about the brain. And you are listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling. Hello, readers. Claudia Kalb is an award-winning author and journalist. Her new book is titled Spark, How Genius Ignites from Child Prodigies to Late Bloomers. Claudia, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Trey. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. So what was your goal with Spark? Well, I really have always been interested in people's life journeys. And, you know, even my own life journey was not one clear path. There were little um, journeys off to the side. And I like the idea of being able to look at questions of human behavior and the arc of life through famous people or people we know, historical figures and some contemporary figures, because it allows us to understand the way we make choices and the way different factors like um, grit or resilience or creativity affect us through storytelling. Um, So the goal of the book was really to explore other people's lives, to draw lessons from those so we could better understand our own. And you broke this book up into four different parts uh, amongst the geniuses that you showcase. What were the uh, four different parts that you broke it up into? Right. Well, I was looking at the sort of arc of life through different um, periods of life, starting with prodigies, which would be children who, uh, you know, attain some level of almost professional uh, capacity by the age of adolescence. And then the teen years um, and early 20s would be a second kind of phase of life. Um, And then moving on to midlifers who were sort of people in their 30s and 40s who found their moments of discovery at that time and then to late bloomers in their 50s and beyond. So kind of beginning with the prodigies and working my way in the book through to the end um, to the late bloomers. Amongst those early bloomers was Pablo Picasso. Just how early was Picasso showing signs of artistic genius and who or what nurtured his artistic abilities in childhood? Right, well, Picasso really did seem to show that ability and really a passion for art very early on. And I would say, there's no absolute proof, but his mother said his first word was lapis, which is uh, Spanish for pencil, that he was drawing in the dust outside his childhood home in Malaga, Spain, um, when he was probably a, about a toddler. Um, and his first paintings a- attracted attention even around the age of 10 or so, and he was getting a professional review of some paintings in his very early teens. And so he really showed that talent, but he also had a father who who was an artist. And so a father right in the family, an artist, professional artist who could teach him the fundamentals. And um, also an uncle who had money more so than his own family, who was able to support his artistic training, um, a mother who was very proud of her son and sort of indulged him. So he had a lot of um, you know, sort of people cultivating his his early life and his childhood. And then within him seemed to have this real passion for the art and a kind of nonstop interest in pursuing it. You mentioned his childhood in Malaga. He and his family actually moved to what is now known as La Coruña when he was about 10. How did that impact him as an artist? Right. Well, so that was a very different neighborhood in terms of Spain. I mean, you go from the, the southern coast 
lots of sunshine to the north, which was much more dreary and um, a different kind of place and environment that his father really didn't like as much. But for Pablo, as a young child, it gave him a sense of independence more so than he had had as a, as a smaller, younger child um, down on the southern coast. And he was able to explore more on his own and to go out and draw more on his own in the environment and started taking art classes and was able at that point to essentially move beyond his father almost in terms of, of his studies um, because he got to go to an art school there where his father also taught. So it, it was sort of a transitional moment in his life and I think kind of put him on the path toward what would then become a profession for him. Scientists have studied what allows a prodigy to own such exceptional talent early in life. And one theory regarding art prodigies has to do with local processing. What is local processing and why is it such an important factor? Prodigies have a, have a unique kind of way of, of being able to process information in their, in their brains when they're looking at um, art and specifically in these studies. And they're able to see shapes and contours that people at their same age as children are unable to process in the same way. So they're able to also see um, more um, foreshadowing and more um, elements of dimension than children of their own age at the same time. And so they're also using these skills of their mind, their brain's ability, they can draw much more realistically and they're able to show images of whatever it might be a fruit or um, a chair or something they're drawing more realistically than, than other kids their own age. So somehow their brains are working, they can envision the parts that make up a whole object, that would be the local processing piece of it, or they can identify small shapes that are in larger shapes. So their brains somehow seem to have this capacity um, to see differently. Even though Pablo Picasso is somebody who did thrive as an adult, not all prodigies become adult geniuses. What separates the haves from the have-nots in this regard? This is a key question because I think there's kind of a misunderstanding. Some people will hear the word prodigy and think genius, but the reality is a lot of them do tend to burn out. And the reason is because they are so focused on these one subject area, whatever it might be, um, that they lose the time and ability that normally you would be devoted to socialization with other children and to learn um, to make choices and do things that they don't have time for because they're so focused on this one particular subject. And so many times they don't end up having the capacity to move beyond the one subject area. This came up in a really interesting way studying Yo-Yo Ma because Yo-Yo Ma seemed to know this for himself. And when he had the choice to go to Juilliard to study in college, he actually decided to go to college at Harvard because he didn't want to stay solely focused on music, even though his talent was clearly there. He wanted to be able to expand his mind and give himself sort of resilience if in, a, you know, in a new way, meet new people, meet new um, people from different places who weren't just musicians. And it really served him well. I think it gave him that capacity to continue um, to excel in his field. I was blown away to learn that Yo-Yo Ma only practiced for about a half hour each day when he was young. Now, having said that, he did grow up in a fairly strict household, ultimately rebelling, as one is prone to do, at a summer music camp during his mid-teens. How did he revolt at that camp, and what way did that impact him going forward as an artist? Yeah, you know, he really was um, an interesting case in the sense that he was born 
to Chinese parents in Paris and lived there till he was about six. And he came to the United States essentially as an immigrant with his family, which he says really shaped him quite a bit. But when he was a, a child, he was growing up with expectations. His father uh, was a musician, very accomplished, his mother a singer, and he did practice um, in this short way, but but every day, and he had to keep that up. And by the time he got to be an adolescent, um, he kind of wanted more, you know, as most teens do, he wanted more independence, he wanted to get out of the strict upbringing that he was brought up in. Um, so he went to this camp in the Adirondacks, and he just, he said at some point, I just went wild. Um, he left his cello out in the rain, he went swimming in the middle of the night, you know, the kind of things that you don't let necessarily think somebody like him so accomplished would have done. But, he, you know, again, he, I think, knew in himself that he needed to be living, you know, somewhat of a normal life. And if he, if he was so focused on the music and never left it, that he wouldn't be able to, to do that. He wouldn't be able to grow as a person. And so in a way he was really, I think, gifted in the, in the self-knowledge way in addition to his musical talent. And while you did touch on this a little bit earlier, where or how did he come to understand the value of a talented young musician and very importantly also their parents not sticking to the narrow confines of music? I think um, one person who made a big impact on him was Pablo Casals, who um, he met, who was a fa very famous cellist who told him, you know, your, your playing is pretty good, but remember, always play baseball. And, um, you know, he remembered that it stuck with him that there's more to life, um, that he knew that he needed to, um, as he, you know, as he learned from Casals, be a, be a person first and then a musician. And he just, um, you know, was able to determine through his own interactions with people and what he learned from others that it would be good for him um, to follow other dreams as well. When he went to Harvard, he took courses in French civilization and sociology. He really enjoyed anthropology. He really expanded his mind. Um, and it really, really did help him, I think, um, and has throughout his life, as he will, he will say himself. What does research show about working memory and how that works in a music prodigy's mind versus maybe your average person who isn't as musically inclined? Well, working memory would be something that um, is, it means the ability to, to not only remember information um, that you have, but to hold on to it while you're doing something else. So it's an ability to almost do two things um, at once. And so it, the, in musical prodigies, you find that they are able to reproduce music from memory before they learn to read it so that they're able to hear the music and reproduce it. Um, and be able to play it. So it's a really interesting thing that's going on with their brain, that, that it's not just reading music and playing it, but it's hearing music and reproducing it from memory. Um, and that they, the studies show that, you know, if you have this training, musical training in childhood, it can actually change your brain. It, it changes the volume of the cerebellum part of the brain, which um, is involved with working memory. And so it's a really interesting aspect. The more scientists learn about the brain, and they still have a lot to learn, but they can kind of begin to pinpoint areas of the brain that work differently in, in say, a musical prodigy versus somebody else. I know a couple of geniuses in my life, and they both have photographic memories. Is a photographic memory a fairly common trait amongst geniuses? Now, that's a really interesting question. I don't know the studies on that for sure, but I would think that having that kind of capacity does 
definitely contribute to um, working memory because if you've got if you've got a photographic memory, that means if you um, see something, you can hold on to that information in, in your brain while doing something else. So I would think that would be a piece of the way um, that it, that it's only going to be an advantageous um, quality that you have that you can see something and remember it and capture it in your brain. It allows you to do something, be you know, to do something others can't do, and also to do more in a way because you can retain that information. But I think that's something that I would have to look up scientifically to be sure. That would be sort of my assessment of what I know from my research. Now, Yo-Yo Ma spent the early part of his life, really his childhood into his early teenage years, as an outsider. It is interesting to consider that being an outsider actually helps someone achieve greatness. Why is this? Yeah, I love this whole. Um, part of research which shows that you know being an immigrant and that, as i mentioned before he came from paris as a chinese um, child in a family to america which was a very different place and he was an outsider in that way he didn't um grow up here and be accustomed to the culture so what he had to do as an outsider was adjust to these elements and figure out where he fit in but also figure out you know immigrants in general when they come to a new country they have to figure out how to make a living and where they're going to um how they're going to to some degree become part of the culture of their new place and so they have a kind of outlook that is broader and bigger they're they're open to um new experience which happens to be a really important trait um in you know excelling if you're open to new experience then you are somebody who is going to learn new things and is going to potentially fail and rebound and is going to be able to sort of climb the ladder of success, even if it's just success as a new immigrant in a new country. That's a big accomplishment because you're being challenged. And so being an outsider, if you look at some of the fascinating studies um, of immigrants, they make up a large number of uh, people who win Nobel Prizes. I think there were almost a third of the Nobel Prizes awarded to immigrant Americans, excuse me, have gone to immigrants and people who were born out of the US, um, that they somehow are pushing and, and figuring out a way to adapt in a way that almost gives them an advantage, even though it can be very challenging. Sir Isaac Newton is in that second category of geniuses that you detail, the group that really found their spark in early adulthood, sometime in their early to mid to late 20s, maybe even their early 30s. Why is the bubonic plague partially to thank for Isaac Newton's spark? Yeah, I think this is something we can all relate to much more now than we might have before. <laughs> um, yeah. um, so the bubonic plague hit in the 16, 1665 when Newton was studying at Cambridge. And just like today, the university shut down when our pandemic started back then, Cambridge shut down and all the students had to leave. So he left and he went home to the family home, um, which is called Woolsthorpe Manor. And it's in a very rural part of um, England, north of London. And it was a place I went there to visit. And it's a place that is incredibly beautiful and serene and rural. And it's a place where you can really um, get lost in your own thoughts. So unlike Cambridge, where he's surrounded by many students and many uh, professors and lots of activities day and night, at Woolsthorpe Manor, he was there by himself. He was in the second bedroom of, or second floor bedroom of this home. He was experimenting, he was thinking, he was going out in the garden to his apple trees to sit and ponder. And he called this a really important time of his life. I mean, th these said it was the prime of my age for invention when he was um, taking that time in Woolsthorpe Manor, which was about 18 months. And so in a way, 
that was where he, he began to formulate his theories, not finish everything, but began to formulate them. And it was a moment that he had to focus solely on his own thoughts. You did visit Woolsthorpe Manor. Was the Apple story true or false? <laughs> That's a great question. We could talk about that all day. Um, <laughs> they will tell you at Woolsthorpe Manor, it's absolutely true. And that tree that they show you, um, which is you know sort of surrounded by a fence and, and in a garden of other trees, it's very beautiful. You can see it from right outside um, Isaac Newton's second floor window in that house. So he would have been looking out at it. Um, and they have compiled a lot of evidence about the tree that makes it um, potentially the real thing. And this has to do with notes that were written by a biographer about, um, you know, the, Newton himself telling the story of going under the shade of the apple tree, and then looking at the tree, how the the um, the, the tree um, trunk is bent down and how it rerooted. And they know this from history that there was a storm. Um, the tree was also sketched by somebody um, who took the house over after Newton was there. And so there's, and they've also timed the tree looking, they've, they've counted the rings and it dates back um, 400 years or so. So that timing seems to work. So um, they really do believe there that this is the tree. And I really, I mean, who am I to argue? <laughs> um, I think given the evidence, it may well be the tree. And, you know, it's certainly, um, even if you um, are you know, suspicious of it, you can still go there and stand there and observe um, the surroundings and, and look at that tree and look at the house where Newton's room was. And it all becomes very clear that this was a very, very important place for him. Are the great ideas or the epiphanous moments that geniuses become known for, are they typically calculated, Claudia, or do they happen more unexpectedly, say the proverbial apple falling from the tree? That's a really interesting question. And I think in a way it's a combination of both. So I think that, um, you know, these eureka moments are often seen as the light bulb over the head and suddenly we know, um, you know, E equals MC squared. But the reality is, that, you know, almost in anything, there's a preparation phase that you're, you know, throughout your time studying your subject, whatever it might be, you're taking in information and it's it's sort of brewing in your head and you're thinking about it. But the truth is that often when those moments happen, it's when you're not thinking about it. So it's when you're doing something else and the, the information sort of comes to the fore and it, and it um, comes out and you often, you know, we, we hear about the story of Archimedes, who suddenly jumps out of the bathtub and says, you know, he's, he now understands how to measure volume um, of water. But, you know, more likely, he knew a lot before that moment, just like anybody does who has these eureka moments. There's a lot of um, foundation that's been laid. And then at some time, and it may be in the shower, it may be on a walk, um, lots of geniuses, especially in the arts or even in other fields, Darwin used to take a lot of walks, walking in the woods, walking outside, um, or taking a bath, that suddenly this particular piece of information um, surfaces. And it, as I mentioned, it's often when you're not thinking about it that it happens. And that's brain blink, is that correct? Oh yeah, so there's really an interesting study um, by two scientists who look at brain blink, John Cuneos and Mark Beeman, and they have looked at where does this brain, the brain um, aha moment, where does it happen in the brain at the cortical level? And they've looked at it and been able to determine that um, it essentially happens over the right ear, which is kind of interesting. Um, and it's preceded by this brain blink where you kind of shift your focus inward 
Um, and you're, you're not thinking about the external distractions. You're thinking about your, your internal, internal thoughts. And they describe it as kind of like when you shut your eyes, let's say you're doing an interview, let's say right now I'm trying to really focus and I shut my eyes. So I'm not looking up at my window or over at my, you know, messy pile of papers. I can focus better. Um, I can think more, you know, focused on the subject I'm trying to talk to you about. And that's kind of how they describe it. That's what's going on at the brain level in a brain blink that might lead to one of these uh, eureka moments. Julia Child is uh, amongst the several figures that you highlight in the middle-aged genius category. You run down the list of attributes about Julia that people loved. She was down to earth. She had an off-color wit to go along with the complicated dishes that she made, or sometimes not so complicated. And you also cite her middle-agedness. What do you mean by this with regards to why Julia Child was so beloved? You know, it really came to me as I was studying her and looking at videos of her, you know, as the French chef. And I think everybody who, who has um, seen them or can envision her on TV in that moment, you know, she was, when she started learning how to cook, she was in her late 30s and she worked on uh, The Joy of French Cooking, this big, enormous book, uh, which was almost like a science book of cooking for quite a long time, more than 10 years. And then when she finally debuted as the French chef for what she's really, really well known, she was 50 years old. And I really think that um, the way that she drew in her her viewers who were such ardent fans is that she really exploited her middle-agedness. She, does, she wasn't um, embarrassed by it. She was willing to be goofy and silly. She was willing to be opinionated when she needed to be. Um, and she really had, a, had an appeal as somebody that people could sort of relate to. She wasn't somebody who looked like a TV anchor, all made up and all fussy. You know, she was very much kind of wacky and open. And I think in a way it's a midlife confidence that she exuded, you know, here I am, this is who I am. And, you know, let's get to it versus, you know, I'm somebody you won't recognize or relate to. And so I think it was midlife that um, not only did it launch her career, but I think it's what people were really, um, really drew people in It appealed to people. It was remarkable to read that Manhattanites were so rabid about that TV show that the restaurants on the island would pretty much be empty the night that she was on. I mean, it's crazy to think that she would have such an effect on the foodie epicenter of this country. But then again, they're foodies for a reason. And she was really helping to define food at the time. Do you think that any shared experiences like that exist in 2021 that appeal to both our cultural and artistic sensibilities? And if not, is something like that even possible in this day and age where we have so many different options at our disposal? Oh, that's a really interesting question. You know, I think one of the things about her that um, drew that kind of crowd was there wasn't a lot of competition. You know, now we've got so many cooking shows. She was really it. She was the beginning. It was, um, you know, she was also emerging at a time when people's interest in food was changing, you know, beyond mashed potatoes and hamburgers. People were interested in the wider world in terms of food and what they might be able to do um, to make a difference. So I, it's hard to imagine a single kind of effect in that way, because as you mentioned, we have so many other choices and the media has become so, um, broadly scattered. I mean, you have podcasts, you have radio, you have television, you have anything you can think of to, um, internet, of course, to, um, appeal to people. And I think it's very hard to find those single experiences anymore. People are really individualized in their interests. I may be wrong and it may come to me later, but you know, the way I'm thinking about it now is that we're all um, 
you know, we all seek out our own individual interests and they're always something to feed our minds in that way. Whereas back then it was sort of, um, TV was still new. It was the show that came on at a certain time every week. You know, this was well before even taping your, t your favorite TV show. Um, so I think it was just a very different time. I, I can't quite see anything comparable today. Now, Julia was compelled to start pursuing her passion cooking after one specific meal that she had with her husband in France. You detail that meal in this book. I highly recommend people check out Spark for that and plenty of other reasons. Stanford psychology professor Carol Dweck has researched and written about the idea of finding your passion. What did you learn from her on this? Yes, the chapter on Julia that if you like food at all, and I think everybody does to some degree. Um, it's it's really fun to hear about that meal, the the fish and the smells of the onions cooking that really appealed to her um, when she was just learning to, to, to food at that point in her late 30s. You made my mouth water through the, uh, the description <laughs> of her meal. Yeah, I know. I, me too. Um, <laughs> reading about her, she, you know, she, she really um, never forgot that meal in France. It was really, you know, her first meal in France. It's hard to imagine that uh, just struck her like, like, not like a, like a bolt in a way that was a real um, aha moment of almost a classic aha moment. Um, but, but in terms of Carol Dweck, you mentioned her and her um, psychology. So she talks a lot about um, something called the growth mindset. Um, and then, you know, the idea that rather than be fixed in what we think about what our potential is or what our interests are, that you embrace an idea that we, we don't really know we can learn and we can improve and we can, you can learn through mistakes even, um, that, you know, I'm going to keep trying. I'm not going to assume I know anything. And, you know, in terms of, of passion, um, she found that, that, that people who have fixed ide ideas about what their abilities are and what they're meant to do in terms of their careers um, give up more easily than people who are more open to change. And that's really interesting, you know, the idea that um, if you can be more open, then you can potentially have more uh, of a of a positive journey because you're not restricting yourself. So I found that really interesting. Julia worked her butt off all the way up until her death, just days before her 92nd birthday. Is it common for geniuses to do this, hone that craft all the way up into their death, regardless of when he or she receives that spark? That's a great question. And I don't know if I can answer it in general, but I would say in terms of the people that I profile in spark, you know, I think about Picasso who worked up until the very last moment of his life. Um, you think about Julia Child who, you know, worked till the last of hers, Eleanor Roosevelt, who, you know, essentially worked to the last of hers and, and Leonardo. I mean, all of these people, um, I had a, a interview with somebody about prodigies in art um, who talk, talks about something called rage to master. And the idea is that when you're a prodigy, you have this kind of intensive, you know, this intense passion for your subject and you want to, you know, you want to get it right and you want to master it. And I think that this shows up in many people's work, these geniuses, that they want to keep going. This is Ellen Winner. I just want to mention her name, who is the psychologist who talks about rage to master. They want to keep mastering their field and keep going and going and going. And they really seem to have a, a, a remarkable amount of energy to do that. In the fourth category of geniuses, those who really discovered their genius in old age. You talk about Peter Marc Roger. Roger was 70 when he retired from a career in science and medicine to publish his thesaurus. 
Roger's Thesaurus. That was mind-blowing to learn, knowing the comprehensive nature of this book. Just how expansive was the first edition of his Thesaurus, and how did he do it? Yeah, he's he's a really remarkable person. I love his story because I was an English major, <laughs> for one thing, um, and I use the thesaurus all the time. Um, but, you know, he was somebody who sp- spent his career in science and medicine, and he had, had a very, very stellar career, too. It wasn't um, that he just sort of muddled through. He had a really, really excellent cl- career. And then, as you mentioned, he retires in his 70s goes back to what essentially was a childhood love. He loved words and he kept lists of words when he was a kid. Um, And so he really liked language. It was almost like an obsession with him. And uh, in a way, it was a way to order his life Um, in kind of a difficult childhood. His father died when he was young and he did a lot of moving around with his mother. And there was some some issues of, of mental health challenges in the family and words were his kind of um, the, the the sort of solid thing that, that stood by him. And when he was in his 20s, he actually drafted a list of thousands of words and put them into these groups. He just, it was something he loved to do. He did it after hours as a scientist and, and a doctor. But then when he was in his 70s and he, you know, sort of needed something to fill his time. I mean, that's the other thing I think about the genius mind is that it's not content to stop. And I think he needed something. He needed a purpose he wanted to feel useful and he started working kind of going back to that original draft that he had composed in his 20s and then fleshed it out and you know he was able to do it he still had energy and he had he would live into his 90s and um he was able to first see the first edition of roger's thesaurus came out when he was 73 and then he oversaw many many more editions of the thesaurus um it became very popular interestingly um Americans got wind of it and really started wanting it during the when the crossword puzzle craze started hmm. um which I thought was really fascinating um and so the thesaurus just took off and he you know I I don't know how exactly he did it in terms of um having all that energy but he was very dedicated he was a very very uh, meticulous guy he liked numbers a lot and he liked details a lot so I think this was just part of who he was, and um, he was able to really dedicate his time to it. Roger likely lived with something along the lines of obsessive-compulsive disorder. Are mental health conditions more common among geniuses than the general population? That's a great question, and it's an often asked and studied question. Um, I think there is, you know, there's a lot of science looking at this question. There's not a lot of absolute conclusions, but if you look at certainly the arts, um, writing and uh, music and art, drawing or painting, there seem to be a lot of anecdotes about um, artists who do have a mental health condition. And in some cases, how we'll, we'll talk about how this helps them in some ways. Let's say it's a bipolar condition where there's some depression and some mania going on that sometimes these manic periods are actually their most fruitful periods for creativity. So there's some really interesting aspects to it. I think in, um, you know, Roger's case, you know, OCD is sort of an, I wrote about actually OCD and um, Howard Hughes in my first book, who, who, uh, which was looking at psychology and 12 other people. And, you know, it is a condition that can provide somebody with certain aspects that can be useful, I guess the word might be in the sense that the person could be very organized and also very, very hyper-focused on something, um, but can also be troubling and can also, in some cases, 
be extremely um, challenging to deal with. So I wouldn't say, no, you do not have to be, um, to have a mental illness or be challenged in some kind of mental health condition to be a genius. There, there is evidence that there are people who have, who have these um, health conditions who are geniuses. So I guess that's the, that's the easiest way to put it. And it's interesting to look at that. And to also, I think in, in this way, acknowledge that, you know, mental health um, is something that is quite common, mental health challenges, and that you can have these, these conditions and still reach remarkable heights. So I think it's a, it's a complicated but interesting subject. Roger obviously revisit a passion from his childhood and one that he did participate in throughout his professional life all the way up till 70 when he actually put it all into working order with his thesaurus. You probed the idea of adults pursuing their childhood interests to find their passion. Now, Claudia, I have a four and a six-year-old at home right now whose passions change pretty regularly. <laughs> Is there an age or a sweet spot that adults should consider with their own childhood passions if they're maybe thinking about a career change or trying to do something a bit different? That's also a really interesting question. And I don't know if there is, if anybody's really looked at whether there is a sweet spot. I think in some cases, it certainly could be as early as age six. I think there are a lot of kids when they think back, that sort of is around the time of their first real memories. If as an adult, I remember when I was, you know, that age thinking about certain things that appealed to me. Before that, it's hard to imagine that you can really remember a whole lot. Um, so I would I would imagine that somewhere between the ages of sort of six and 12, you build these initial interests. I agree with you that children's interests do change a lot um, at that point. And then I think starting around 12 and probably up, you probably see more of a um, an interest that holds a little more in terms of a, a child is more able to focus. And by then, a he or she might be interested in something and want to spend time doing it. So I think that's one of the key things that children who have a real interest in something, you kind of have to pull them away because they really are that that subject really appeals to them in a way that something else doesn't. So if you provide a child with music lessons or um, and that that child um, really takes to it, then it's something to pay attention to, I think, and to continue to nurture um, and allow them also to, um, you know, I think, keep little journals or diaries just as a way to document these interests early on, because there is evidence to some degree that these childhood interests in some people are the things that um, are going to make them happy as adults and that they don't necessarily need to be shoved aside as, as sort of that's just, you know, that was I was a kid. It was just a hobby. You know, sometimes those kinds of interests do turn out to be serious interests that will compel that person to live a happy and successful life. Exactly. And sometimes those passions turn into other passions as adults. You start out someplace, you end up some someplace completely different, but you're following those passions, you're following your heart the entire time, and you end up very content when it's all said and done. Right. I think that's absolutely right. Claudia Kalb is an award-winning author and journalist. Her new book is Spark, How Genius Ignites, From Child Prodigies to Late Bloomers. Claudia, thank you for the time today, and thank you for the superb book. Thank you so much, Trey, for having me. It was great talking with you. Join me next time when I speak with The Daily Show's C.J. Hunt and Roy Wood Jr. about their new documentary, The Neutral Ground, which is the premiere episode for season 34 of American Documentary on PBS. It is an insightful and at times hilarious conversation about their film, which documents the removal of Civil War statues from in and around New Orleans and elsewhere throughout the country. 
Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for providing the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to you for hanging out today. You can listen, learn, and subscribe at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day. Good day.